You're listening to the Hardman Podcast, reclaiming biblical masculinity in a world of solids. Welcome to this episode of the Hardman Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Kahn, and I'm so excited to be with you in this episode. We are going to be talking about the top 10 reasons why men hate going to church. And uh, spoiler alert, there's actually 11 reasons on this list. Yeah. So I made my list, 10 reasons. I was like, really happy. This neatly fits into like an SEO friendly title. And then I had 11 of them. So it's kind of like today on Twitter, I was responding to somebody's tweet. They said, in a single word, what's the most important feature about fatherhood, and I said, dad jokes. And my friend Brandon on there, he said, hey man, that's two words, what are you doing? So naturally, what did I do? I hyphenated dad jokes, now it's one word. As Brandon asked me, we we might ask now with this episode, you all right? Are you all right, dude? And I hope the answer to that question is yes. So we're going to do the 10 reasons men hate going to church with 11 reasons. Maybe it's 4D chess and you don't even know it. Maybe that's what I'm doing. Maybe. Or maybe I'm just losing it. So why do men hate going to church? Depending on which data you look at, the average American congregation is about 61% female, 39% male. And there are different groups, right? Pew Research, Institute for Family Studies, that produce different statistics and different numbers. They will show a certain degree of disparity in their numbers, depending on denominations. Again, some of them include Mormonism, right? Some of them are talking about a bunch of different denominations. We might not even split up, but nonetheless, they're all in agreement. Protestant, Catholic, Anglican, Western churches are predominantly composed of women, right? Western churches are predominantly male. Lacking, they are female in attendance predominantly. So, in case you think this is something new, I think I mentioned this in the show before, the book at least, which is by Leon Podols, and that is the book, The Church Impotent. But here's the reality this feminizing trend in the church has not been going on since the 1970s, it's been going on for a couple hundred years in the Western church. So interestingly enough, you can look at Jewish, you can look at Muslim, you can look at Eastern Orthodox communities, and the reality there is that they don't suffer from the same problem. There's something in the very fabric of Western Christianity that is leading to the feminization, and we're going to talk about those things, at least some of them, 10 or 11 of them, in this episode. Right. But then you look at the Eastern churches, right? Judaism, Islam, Eastern Orthodoxy, and then the majority of their religious establishments are comprised of men. Right. Why is this? So, Islam, for example, is 65%, 65% male in composition. So, complete opposite of what you see happening in the Western church. So we're going to explore that question too with Islam a little bit later in the episode. 
Right. So this brings us to the very important central question for this episode. And it has been a conundrum for a lot of people. Why do men hate going to church, right? Why is it that men hate going to church, particularly in the West? Well, the subject is taken up among other places in David Murrow's book titled Why Men Hate Going to Church. I may review and talk about that book in a later episode. It has a lot of good thoughts, and some of those will be sort of crossover content with what I want to say in today's episode. And again, I mentioned the book just a minute ago, but Leon Podol's book, The Church Impotent, also another good resource on the subject matter. So we're going to be exploring that question in this episode, and again, 10 or 11 reasons why I think men hate the church. I think I'm going to provide actually quite a bit of different content than you'll find in Why Men Hate Going to Church. A lot of good stuff in that book, but I'm going to go a little different direction in some of these points. So another question we might ask in relation to the question, why do men hate going to church, is related to it. Why should we care? Why should we care if men aren't present at church? Well, my answer would be, I mean, you could attack this from multiple levels, but there are very practical societal implications at the very least that come out of this question, why men have stopped going to church. So men stop going, it's going to impact society and pretty quickly, right? Without the moral, the theological mooring that church provides, the character and behavior of men quickly suffers, and it's going to lead to a plethora of social ills and social plagues that affect every area of society. So it's hard to limit this discussion because it literally affects everything. It affects families, marriages, households, communities, businesses. Men are part of God's plan for ordering the chaos of creation, right? We find this in Genesis 1 through 3, and particularly 1 through 2, pre-fall. Men have a purpose for taking dominion. They have a purpose for establishing order in creation. They're to lead in those tasks. They're to work and to keep in the garden. Right. And so without them present and accounted for and active in culture, culture and society and the world around us simply begins to crumble. Right. So to provide just a few examples of this, right, apart from a proper Christian telos, an aim, right, Christian purpose for men, men turn their sexual energy and their physical strength toward toxic aims. Right? You have these really powerful forces with physical nature and with sexuality. Right? Men are very strong. They're very sexually potent. But when you aim them at the wrong things, what you get is utter chaos and destruction. Right? You get things like the sexual objectification of women. You get drunkenness. You get rampant porn use. You get young men in their 20s on erectile dysfunction medication because they're over stimulated visually and sexualized in every facet of their existence, right? We have these casual relationships, quote unquote, right? Just fornication. It's a fancy word for we sleep with a lot of people. We have serial dating, right? Things going on with Tinder and other dating apps and how people are, it's like turned into its own nightmare marketplace for serial dating and preying on members of the opposite sex, right? Men and women are guilty of this, right? It leads to things like physical violence. Men are going to commit most of the homicides. 
and the violent crimes, right? These are men predominantly without fathers in their lives, as we'll see, right? Men are also delaying marriage more than they ever have. Women too, right? And so when you delay marriage as a man, what you're delaying is productive households in the arena for learning responsibility. And so as men more and more are delaying marriage, they delay household, they delay responsibility, and society suffers for this. We have a lot of Peter Pans play acting at life, and we have not a lot of men taking responsibility and building things that make stable societies, right? You could go on and on, and we have in past episodes of the show, but you could go on and on about what happens when men are absent. Right, All of this, men being absent, men not being in church, it's bad for society. And the statistics bear this out really well. Even secular psychologists and biologists and anthropologists and sociologists, they can all point to just the clear reality that when fathers aren't present, you get a lot of destructive energy in culture, in society, in homes and marriages, etc. Right? Fatherless homes have astronomical rates of sons who end up in the penal system, right? It's documented. Fatherless homes have immense financial hardships, right? Single motherhood is very difficult. The feminist movement tried to say that it wouldn't. It would be freeing to women to have no-fault divorce. And yet the opposite has proven true. Why? Because women end up taking care for the kids anyway, right? It causes financial stress, and it's not a good environment. The data simply points this out. It's interesting, even infants, studies have shown that even infants in fatherless environments, fatherless homes, experience diminished weight gain and have trouble breastfeeding. So they don't put weight on like they should, right? Even an infant, you can kind of think, well, what, you know, why do you really need a father? How would that impact an infant? Well, it does, right? Dads to throw you up in the air, dads to play with you, to provide stability. A constant male presence is immensely important at a number of levels. So right at the societal scale, when men are absent, what happens? Communities, institutions, they crumble and they decay. And it starts with the most atomic unit, as we said, that forms the stable society. That's the household. No men, no household. Right. If you're familiar with Chris Wiley's book, C.R. Wiley, right, he says that the pater, right, Latin for father is the foundational word for patria, household, right? You can't even have a household without fathers, right? That's in the language, and, and it's true in reality as well as we look out in the world. Without strong households, in turn, there are not strong communities, churches, governments, or society. So again, what is the point we're making? Men don't go to church. That radically changes the morality and character of the fabric of masculinity and men in the culture. Right? You get immoral men, and then that deeply impacts society. So it's an important question that we're going to be asking today, and I want to do that now. Why do men hate going to church? Well, the first reason that I want to give for why men hate going to church is because the majority of churches today teach what I'm calling a loser eschatology. Right? A lot of people today, they think, what, what difference does your view of the end times have, right? Why are you so big, Eric, about being post-mill? Because post-mill is a hopeful, dominion-taking mindset, not just about the end times, but what happens between now and then. That's the question. What happens between now 
and the final day when the Lord comes back. Well, the loser eschatology that is taught so predominantly in the church tells men that, look, between now and that final day, we just get our butts kicked, right? We just lose. Every effort that you would make at cultural transformation is going to fail, right? In most churches today, this is the dominant position, that Christians are meant to get trampled in the cultural ground game, and then at the last day, Christ will come to bring victory, right? This is summarized really well in one of my favorite books. This is David Chilton's book, and it is called Paradise Restored. And this is what David Chilton has to say about this, right? These are the opening pages of the book. He said this, quote, this is a book about hope. For too long, Christians have been characterized by despair, by defeat, and by retreat. For too long, Christians have heeded the false doctrine, which teaches that we are doomed to failure, that Christians cannot win. The notion that until Jesus returns, Christians will steadily lose ground to the enemy. Right? And meanwhile, he goes on to say, oddly enough, we view this as progress, right? Why are these TGC, Gospel Coalition Christians, they're actually celebrating as culture is destroyed? Well, this is what David Chilton says. Oddly, this is viewed as progress. It's a step forward toward the expected goal of the total collapse of civilization, a sign that Jesus might come to rescue at any moment. Social action projects, Chilton goes on, were looked on with skepticism. It was often assumed that anyone who actually tried to improve the world, right, culture building, must not really believe the Bible because the Bible taught that such efforts were bound to be futile. As one famous preacher put it, you don't polish brass on a sinking ship. Meanwhile, Chilton says, and here's what's really key, this is where I get the idea of a a loser eschatology or a loser theology that has dominated the church and is utterly repulsive to men. This is what Chilton says. Evangelism was an invitation in this system to join the losing side. Who wants to be a part of the losing side? Do you want to join the church of losers and impotent men? Men who can't hack it out in the real world? Is that what you want to do as a manly man? Chilton goes on. This was rooted in two problems. One, was a false view of spirituality, right? So this is what I've called in the past pietism. And this is where, I'm going to pick up the quote, this is where pietism leads. Chilton says this, you have one duty in life in this spiritual system. Get stepped on for Jesus. The spiritual man, quote unquote, in this view is a wimp, a loser, but at least he's a good loser. Right? Do you understand why this is so repulsive? This loser eschatology is so repulsive to men? Right? Uh, calling all wimps. Why don't you come down to church? Right? Men don't want any part of that. And Chilton will go on, and, and this is, we'll get into this in just a second, but what we need in replacement to the loser theology is dominion eschatology. Yes, there's a cross, but there's also a crown. Yes, there's suffering and meekness and humility, but it is for a purpose. Jesus went to the cross, not so he could be a loser, so he could defeat the dragon, which is Satan, and so he could rule in glory forever over all creation and over all things. Right? That's not a loser theology. Yes, Philippians 2, Jesus strategically condescended and humbled himself, and we're called to do the same, so that, 
he might receive glory. So even when you humble yourself as a man, you're aiming at glory. And that's not what loser eschatology teaches. Right? Again, what man wants to be invited to join the losing team? What man wants to get trampled for Jesus? Not me and not most manly men. Right? Again, Jesus' example is so important for us to remember. It's aimed at glory. Suffering aimed at glory. Responsible action, suffering, but glory. Right? Another example of this that I want to highlight is from Bruce Ashford's book called Every Square Inch. And this illustrates the same mindset that is so popular in evangelical circles. So this is what Bruce says in his book, quote, We realize as Christians that we will never win by transforming our culture in such a way that it glorifies Christ comprehensively or enduringly. God never promises victory until Christ returns and secures the victory for himself. So again, pause for just a second. Do you understand what he's saying? There's no expectation that you're going to win in the cultural war, no expectation of victory, and God never promises a victory until Christ returns. So you're just going to get your butt kicked the whole game, and at the very end, Christ comes, and then you win at that last day. Again, what does that mean for your life? It means your cultural efforts. Men are culture builders. And, and he's saying your effort as culture builder, man, is going to be a total failure. So all you should expect is to lose. Again, what man would be motivated for this? Again, the, the quote goes on. But he does command us, God commands us to obey him and bear witness to him by doing everything within our power to direct our cultural activities toward Christ. End quote. So do you see what happens here? Right? You take men who, again, as I said, you're created in Adam, right? Man from the garden is created for one purpose, which is mainly his mission to take dominion. And he does this through his sexuality, right? With the woman, he creates children, is fruitful and multiplies. And then he works and he keeps, he fights and he takes thing under his rule in all creation, right? Men are culture builders by nature. And so you're going to take that man and the church is going to tell them that, guess what? As culture builder, you can only ever fail. Now, what I find so abjectly absurd about all of this is God throughout scripture, new, new covenant, old covenant, God promises success to his people, right? The glory of the Lord will fill the earth from sea to sea, right? In Ezekiel, we're told that the water will flow out of the temple, and it will reach all the nations. The Psalms are repetitive in this theme of Christ ruling over all creatures, over all of creation, over all kings and nations and principalities and power. And then yet we get to the church, and it's just get trampled for Jesus. You're never going to succeed. Well, again, why would you engage the culture if your preachers and pastors are continually telling the men in the church, All you're ever going to do is lose and get killed and be persecuted and die. Well, I mean, how motivated would you be? I'm not. Not by that message. Right? It's disheartening for men. And so they leave and then they go and they pour their whole lives into mission of work. Right? They go into their jobs and they pour it in there and they just, 
they leave the church, which is sad. The church should be giving them God-ordained mission wherever they go to build culture. And instead, they forsake that church and leave. Right? Here is the reality. This is what I said before. Men are made for dominion. Their bodies are filled with physical prowess and strength. And so they need to be taught how to use those bodies for the purpose of building a meaningful culture and, and aimed at the kingdom of God. Not Babel, but the kingdom of God. The reason God gave you the strength of your body and the competency of your hands is so you could meaningfully build in a Solomon-type way. Right? You could build the kingdom of God. You could build beautiful cathedrals, yes, but you could also build amazing media empires that glorify Christ and speak truth to a world that is being propagandized by lies. You know, think about that. Anywhere and everywhere you could go, artisan, craftsman, whatever you do, do under the glory of God, right? You're made for this. Your body is made for this. That's why men, you were given physical strength. It's not so you could take selfies of yourself in the gym mirror. That strength is good if it's used for a purpose, not flamboyant self-exaltation and vanity, right? But you have this body of strength for dominion. And then think about your sexuality. It's so that you can find a wife of your youth and you can be fruitful and you can raise future dominion takers and sons and daughters for glory, right? They assist you with your wife in this work of dominion. And so you have this meaningful purpose. But again, you go to church today, and this is absolutely absent from the church. As we'll unpack, it's just drivel and emotionalism. There is no mission. Right? So again, if you want to attract men to your church and to the church and to be called and full of purpose, then we need to start embracing dominion theology. Again, as I said in the last episode, read Paradise Restored. I think I mentioned that. If I didn't, I'm mentioning it now. You should read that book. It's fantastic. Right? Men need a mission, and that means they need dominion. Number two, why do men hate going to church? Well, because as I've said, and this, I, I get it, this is repeat, but some of you, maybe you didn't listen to it. Maybe we just need to hear it again. I think you can't say it enough in our culture and context. The church is a pietistic wasteland. Pietism sucks. It's bad. It's romantic. Jesus is my girlfriend garbage, right? It's closely, it's very closely related to this loser mentality in the church, right? Pietism. I've covered in depth, and I'm going to cover it just briefly again. Pietism focuses on the internal, emotional, personal aspects of the faith. But again, it excludes the very manly, outward-facing elements of cultural engagement. Right? Men want to build businesses. They want to be involved in government and art and political theology, cultural theology. Men are made to go take the dirt of the earth and form it according to their will to be something glorious for God. They build bridges. They use their minds to craft technology that does amazing things and simplifies our tasks. And it helps us be more efficient so that we can build more and better culture. Just the beauty of what we can create through computers and typing. Think about all that we can accomplish. And Doug Wilson was right. He said, having a smartphone is like having a thousand servants at your disposal. Maybe 10,000. How cool is it that men have created such things? Right? Men are made for culture building. 
building economies, right? It causes us to thrive. But what does pietism do with all that masculine energy? Well, it tells men not to focus too much of that energy or effort on cultural architecture. It tells them not to protect their nation or their community or their borders, right? How many people within the pietistic gospel-centered movement are like, no, man, open borders because the gospel and Jesus and love and puppies and cookies and rainbows. What? What does that even mean? We're not sure, but if you really were centered on the centeredness of the centrality of the gospel centeredness, somewhere in the heart of the center, you would not have closed borders. You would not want to protect your nation. You would believe that war is evil, except when the neocons are blowing up Iraq and Afghanistan, but never mind that. We like George Bush. Can't even keep this stuff straight. Right, But men are told not to protect. That's in their nature. And you say, don't protect your community. Don't protect your kids. The Gospel Coalition telling you to send your kids to a pagan indoctrination camp for the gospel, quote unquote. What are they telling you? They're telling you as a father not to protect your kids. Let the enemy have your kids. It's okay. Just let it happen. Right? This pietism is inherently unmanly. If I have not made this abundantly clear on like my fifth episode on pietism, here it is. Pietism is gay. Pietism is inherently effeminate, soft, unmanly. It embraces the same loser theology mentioned before. Right? You're actually exhorting Christian men that persecution is good for them. Getting killed is good for you. Failing at your cultural task is good for you. Yeah, I know God said you'll succeed in it, but We don't think that, and so you should lose and like it. Men are not made to enjoy losing. We're not made to enjoy participation trophies. There's a reason that participation trophies cause men to, like, vomit in their soul and just retch. But but you didn't win. Men are conquerors. You're made to win, and you didn't. Imagine Paul, right? All men run that they may receive the crown. We should just change Paul's words according to the leftist soft lefty reformed crowd, right? Paul didn't run to win a crown. He ran to make everyone feel good in the race. No, that's not what Paul said, right? All of these pastors, Ray Ortland, he blocked me, right? Ray Ortland, cheerleading. I rejoice at the death of the Bible Belt culture. Really? And, and these guys would replace it with LGBT story hour, David French. It is a gift that we have LGBT story hour in our libraries. Yet you hate conservatism. I would rather have conservatism and Rush Limbaughism than transgender dudes dressing up like women reading to little kids. What a bunch of pervs. These are the people leading the church. This is what I want you to hear. These are the people leading the church. What man in his right mind would want to be a part of that church? Not me, right? I remember reading an open letter. I think it was at Matt Chandler's church. It was like a law enforcement officer. All the BLM stuff was going down. And he's like, I can't, I cannot stomach this church any longer, the village church. And why? Why would you? Right? The only people who enjoy that are like communist white guys who are sick fans and go to like the feminist club meetings in college campus. 
right? They're like gay dudes trying to win the favor of feminazis. It's the only people that like this theology, who like this leftist push within the church, right? Think about the other thing. Like men are made to be industrious and build wealth. Wealth is not an evil thing. Wealth is good. Solomon was dun 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 rich. Wisdom leads to riches, right? But think about gospel-centered ministries like David Platt's Radical. Right? This dude's living in an 800K home while telling you that you should give away all your stuff and adopt kids from all over the world. Because the only way you can be faithful to the gospel, and the only way you can build the kingdom is adopting little Chinese, Russian, whatever, black kids and giving your money away to Radical. It's the only way. This whole pietistic wasteland leads to the Piper theory of self-defense, which isn't self-defense, which is actually just defying, again, the nature of the masculine soul. Just let them kill your wife, right? So that's my point. Pietism sucks. Any church, and most churches are, any church that is controlled and consumed by pietistic nonsense is going to be utterly repulsive to masculine men. Number three... This really gets to the, the, you know, the environment. Where did the pietism come from? Number three, the church is run by soft men and loud controlling women. So you have guys in the pulpit who are soft and the nice guy language. And we never speak directly to sin unless, of course, it's the conservatives. Right. But we it's a, it's about nuance. It's about gospel witness. Right. It's about not offending people. It's about making the secular elites like you, right? It's all soft men with soft speech. And what does that do? It opens the door for loud, controlling women. Like how many churches are actually run by deacon or elders' wives who are just controlling, who have never been disciplined by a man, right? They've never been exhorted to stop gossiping. They've never been told, just stay out of it. I don't want you involved. And you don't need to be involved. Men are supposed to put women in that context in their place. If you have a loud, gossipy woman, she needs to be called to repent and stop. But is a soft man in the pulpit going to do that? No. Right? And so then what happens downstream from this? Again, you have a church that is predominantly full of women, 65% women. You get men in the pulpit who speak and act in such a way to please that constituency, right? And then you get all these controlling women in the church. Again, it's a mix of feminism. It's a mix of effeminate men, right? Michael Foster, non-tenant, they talk a lot about this. Wherever you have white knights, you have loud controlling women. It's just the way the world works. And it also tends to be a passive-aggressive environment. Right? It's an environment that is just full of passive-aggressive tactics, all the little knife-edge words, no direct confrontation. I remember this used to happen when I was pastoring the church uh, as well for several years. Like You'd have loud, gossipy women, and then I would go to them and I'd be like, you need to not gossip. And they would just be like, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. Right? And then they would go have a private meeting with another elder and not tell me about it. And then you'd ask them about it, and you say, did you meet with this person? Well, no, not too much for three hours, and it was all about you. Like, this becomes such a problem. 
it's why that same environment is happening in col- corporate America too, right? The passive aggressive, soft, effeminate men. They're afraid to speak plainly. They're afraid to address issues head on. Again, controlling women, passive aggressive. Here's my point. Masculine men hate this, right? Speak plainly. If you got a problem, go to somebody's face. Godly women, by the way, you know who hates this environment too? Godly women. So pretty much, here's the thing. It's not just that all these reasons drive out masculine men. They also drive out godly women, okay? So keep that in mind as we go through them. Fourth, the church's songs are emotionalistic, sappy, and gay, right? I was watching uh, recently, a friend shared this with me. I've, I've never actually watched an episode of South Park, uh, which will please my Reformed Baptist friends who are, they're, agree- they're just grieved that I even know what that is probably at this point. But, but I was watching this little skit in South Park, and they were like writing quote-unquote Christian songs, and they were like, yeah, let's just take songs about our girlfriend, and we take out the word baby and replace it with Jesus. I need you so much, Jesus. Right? They clearly understand, the South Park creators are obviously clever, they understand what's happening in the Christian church. We have emotionalistic romance songs. Right? Who wants that? Now, one of the blessings, I would say, is this whole movement of why, why Cantus Christi, Moscow, uh, Doug Wilson, Ben Zorns, why are we going back to recovering the old hymns and particularly the Psalms? Well, one of the things you notice about the Psalms is that they are full of dominion language. They're full of the spirit and ethos of warriors for Christ. King David was a warrior, right? The modern church doesn't want to talk anything about that. Right, we we only want to talk about Jesus meek and mild. Right, but the reality is, if we would go back to singing the Psalms, we have these hymns and songs that are just so rich and robust. You think of Joy to the World; it's all about God's dominion. Far as the curse is found, the blessing of Christ's redemptive work is going to extend across the globe. It's one of the ironies, you know. You get to Christmas time, and you have all these songs and hymns that are playing in like the mall joy to the world is playing in the mall and like these people clearly don't know what they're singing about the lordship and dominion of christ right unfortunately the church doesn't remember this either Uh, we were at a christmas service some years ago and um, it was like a joint church service in a small town and so we would come together and we'd have a, a christmas service and uh Right before I vomited, metaphorically speaking, right before I vomited, the worship leader with his guitar, he said, what we've done is we've taken some traditional Christmas hymns like Joy to the World, and we've deleted 90% of the verses, and we've updated them with Chris Tomlin choruses. And this is what he said. He goes, so they're richer and more robust than they've ever been. And literally it was like, Joy to the world, some stupid chorus repeated a hundred times. I mean, you can't even make this stuff up. Like, you have taken the hymns of the church and you absolutely neutered them and deleted the psalm book because it makes us uncomfortable, quite frankly. Right? Think about the imprecatory psalms, for God's sake. Think about, and literally, I mean, for God's sake, think about the imprecatory psalms. 
Lord, we pray that our enemy's children would be dashed against the rocks. Well, that just got uncomfortable in, like, modern worship. I don't think they played that song on K-Love. Right? We don't even know what to do with them, but this is why we need them so desperately. Right? Now, I'll be the first to admit there are times when I get too sarcastic. I get too, I don't know what the word is, too biting with my language, right? You know, we don't need to be biting all the time. But one of the most common complaints I get about this show is from people who are, they're just not used to anyone speaking plainly or candidly about the problems in the church. Well, Eric, should you really be calling things gay? Um, yes, I should. We used to know what that meant, right? We used to know what it meant that something was effeminate. Well, our music is effeminate. If you want to attract men to the church, we need to sing psalms and we need to sing songs and hymns that, look, go back to the historic because they don't have our errors. We desperately need them. Right? The men of God go forth to war. Are you kidding me? We don't sing anything like that today. So again, if you want to attract men to the church, sing songs that are not, you know, romance love songs to Jesus that happen to be gay. Number five, gospel-centered churches are at war with manly dominion. I would just encourage you on this point to check out my latest episode on churchianity. But again, this whole manly task of dominion, gospel-centered churches hate this, right? We're not to win the culture war, etc. And really, churchianity, the concept is men's only mission can be found inside the walls of the church. That's the only way that you can extend the kingdom. So again, it neuters men's vocational callings and basically tells them that those are unimportant. This is going to be a huge turnoff to men. What you need are pastors encouraging men, like, hey, do that business to the glory of God. Go pour into it. Go invest. Right? Building businesses in and around the community of the church where we can support each other. Right? Everybody needs a good electrician. Everybody needs a good plumber. It would be nice to know one who is faithful right, who did good work. Men should be encouraged in those endeavors. They should not be taught that they are second rate. Number six, why do men hate going to church? Because adjacent Christian media and publishing ministries are at war with men. So there, you know, you look at like the gospel coalition, coalition as one obvious one, but even like Zondervan, right, with the, all the Bible translations, the ESV is somewhat uh, has gone down this route, right? Neutering words from the text, taking out words that are offensive, taking out he, she pronouns, they, everything's they now, right? But then even the books, like I haven't been in a Christian bookstore, honestly, in, in Foreverville uh, because they're so horrible. But like most of the books, I remember going there and it's like all devotionals, like chicken soup for the men's soul. And then you read it and it's like, this was written by either a woman or a gay dude. Okay, I'm not reading that book. A lot of stuff that's just not attractive to men. There's a reason that men, where do they go when you go to the bookstore? Remember bookstores? But if you had a bookstore, remember where men would go? They go to history and war. Right? Why? Because men love a fight. They love the stories of glory. Right? And you go to the Christian publishing section at your local bookstore and you find that, I think these people actually hate masculinity. Shocker. There's an article on my website, ericcon.com, and I reference a lot of conversation back when Paul Maxwell was a Christian before he apostatized. 
he had some really good thoughts. He worked within the Christian publishing industry and he had a lot of insights. He said, listen, you know, I, I think he, he wrote for uh, Desiring God and the Gospel Coalition, I think, Christianity Today, maybe. And he basically said, look, it's, it's literally it's a leftist bent by gay men and a feminist women. And uh, he said all of our books and acquisitions were aimed at, you wanted to get the wife, you wanted to get the woman to buy a book to give to her husband, right? As like homework, I guess, right? Because men were not doing much of the reading, so create a book that the woman likes and will give away as a gift that the man never reads, right? The, the books were not written for men. And again, so this brings me to the point, like if Christian media and publishing are at war with men, that affects men's view of the church. Many of those authors are pastors, right? So this is going to drive men from the church. Number seven, the church is oblivious to the plight of men today. Again, it's good to be a man and other people have really pointed to, listen, I, I'm so sick of tire, tired of hearing like the beatdown that men get inside the walls of the church. Again, this whole dynamic of women don't sin, right? Only men sin. That's a huge part of this. But, but the other part, I remember uh, talking to a pastor and a young couple. Well, they were, they were a couple, but they were not married. And they were being counseled. And the older pastor, they're having sex. You know, they're fornicating. And the older pastor says to the man, do you think she wants this? She doesn't want this. You want this. I was sitting there thinking like, are you crazy? Have you ever read Proverbs? Like, some women are whores. Like, they are seductive. And of course they want it. You know, it's this whole idea that it's always the man's fault. Um, I, uh, One more, I had an interaction on Twitter not too long ago. And a guy said, if your marriage is failing men, I have a newsflash. It's your fault. And, you know, very pithy, I thought. I said, well, unless it's her fault. In which case, you know. And everybody's like, well, the man has ultimate responsibility. Now, I'm not disagreeing with you on that. Men are to be responsible. But listen, some men are married to just truly horrible women. Some men are married to horrible women. And we all know this. Like, you meet the guy and you're like, he's pretty nice. And you meet his, his wife and you're like, oh, my goodness. Why did you ever marry her? Like, that is horrible. She's a bad person. Right? She really struggles controlling her tongue, controlling her attitude, being hormonal, hormonally stable, whatever it is. Right? The reality is that it's not always the man's fault. And much of the church doesn't understand the plight of men. Listen, you can read Zach Garris's book on this, Masculine Christianity. But what's the reality? Like, who initiates most divorces in America today? I think it's like 86% women. Right, so you're going to blame men for that? I have a hard time with that one. Good luck. Right, the reality is most pastors don't understand the plight of men today. They're browbeating them with truisms and empty platitudes that work 30 years ago. Just do it. Man up. Right, but again, men need to be taught how to man up, and they need to be shown practical step-by-step Again, clueless bastard generation. We need pastors who understand the plight of the church and the plight of men in the church, particularly what they're facing with their wives, what they're facing in the dating culture. Like dating culture is so different even than when I 
was dating. And that wasn't that long ago. A couple decades. <laughs> anyway, it, it, it's changed. Even in the last two decades, it's changed a lot. So the church needs to get a clue. If you don't have a clue, pick up It's Good to Be a Man, and you can start to have a clue. Number eight, why do men hate the church? Why do men hate going to church? Because the church lacks masculine brotherhood and meaningful mission. This is tied to dominion. But man, like you've, I've mentioned it before. I know I have, but the meme, right? With the true miracle, the true miracle Jesus works that nobody talks about was that he had 12 friends, 12 close friends in his 30s. Like, it's really hard to find friends and to find brotherhood. That is just the simple reality. Now, I want to give some encouragement here. I've talked about gangs. You can listen to that episode, Why Men Need Brotherhood, Why Men Need Gangs. So I didn't have them. Like, when I, when I wrote that episode, I really didn't have them. And, you know, I didn't have them in my local church. And it was something that I wanted, you know. I wanted to have them. but. It, it didn't turn around overnight. And so what did I do? I listened to Michael Foster. I started connecting with dudes on Twitter and just getting to know people over time. Developed really wonderful relationships with a couple different groups of guys around the country. Some of them now we live next to. Some of them I work with. But here's the reality. like I have two, at least two groups of multiple, multiple men in two camps in my life who are like you just cut your hands and do the blood packed thing and like blood on three, like we're in it to the death. Right. And my point in that is like, it took a lot of work. It took a lot of travel. It took a lot of prayer. It took a lot of effort to figure out like, do our missions align? But I would just encourage guys that it is possible. Like I went from not having a church, not having a brotherhood in the church, not having a meaningful mission not having guys that were engaged in that mission alongside you to now having it in, in spades. But again, it was like several years worth of cultivation and work and connections, again, networking, and then really investing in men. You know, one of the hardest things I found as a man is we want to be like self-sufficient. It's really hard to say, I need you. Um, it's really hard to say that to another man. Until you're in the trenches, until you're fighting together, and then you just realize, like, we need to let that guard down to a certain extent with the men around us, a certain key group of trusted men. I'm not saying do it all the time, but you need a brotherhood and you need a meaningful mission. And so I would just encourage you, if you don't have that, reach out to men, start with the places where you see it happening, right? Maybe you contact Michael Foster, they're starting a church in Batavia, Ohio, Maybe you talk to Brian Sylvain and Dan Burkholder, as I did, uh, in Utah. Maybe you talk to the folks in Moscow. Maybe you talk to Tom Askell, if you're a Reformed Baptist. Lots of Reformed Baptist churches, Kentucky, Florida, all over the place, right? Use what you can by way of social media. Get to know people. Find your gang. Find the men who will stand next to you. A brother is born for adversity. Again, I found it. You can find it. You got to do the hard work. It does not come easy, right? Finding your people does not happen by accident. It happens by intentionality and intense effort. So I just encourage you, men, to be about that work. Find your gang. Find your brotherhood. Just by way of critique of the church, there isn't this, right? There isn't masculine brotherhood in the church. What we think sometimes that we have 
masculine brotherhood, but do we actually have it? Right? So often we have like these gay therapy sessions. I know because I've been a part of them. We have these gay therapy sessions and we want to call that men's ministry. Why don't we all get together? We might have breakfast and bacon, but we're just going to share our feelings. Like no man wants to be a part of that. He needs mission and work and actual dominion taking in and adjacent to the church. Again, if you want to attract men, you got to create mission and brotherhood. Number nine, why do men hate going to church? Because the church's message is filled with moral therapeutic deism and psychobabble. Again, worth an episode in its own right, but what is the issue here? Well, the issue here is that men, shocker, were not made predominantly to listen to therapy from the pulpit, right? Well, what is your daddy wound? What is your father wound? You know, everything is feelings-based. It's like completely in the church in so many sectors, the language of 1970s and onward therapy has just been injected into the scripture and it's pagan and godless. You know, before CRT, we were really dealing with this in the biblical counseling world. Like this was a big thing, right? Jay Adams was addressing it. Like psychobabble in the language of therapy had completely corrupted so many counseling opportunities within the church, right? Ministries and then some stuff adjacent to the church. Absolute garbage, right? But it was all in the language of moral therapeutic deism. And what is that? It's basically the teaching that, look, God wants you to be happy and fulfilled and satisfied. It's all the self-talk, right? Self-care, self-talk. If I hear a dude tell me that I need to to do some self-care, I'm probably going to walk out or punch him in the face, right? I don't want to talk about self-care. I don't want to talk about my feelings. I want to hear about the glory of Jesus who has conquered sin and Satan and has redeemed us and has called us unto a life of holiness. I want liturgy in my service, not therapeutic deism. I want the creeds. I want the scriptures read. I want the psalms sung. I do not want to talk about daddy wounds. And surprise, surprise, most men don't. Again, if, if the church is going to attract men, we need to get away from the language of therapeutic deism. We absolutely do not need that in the church. Now, why do I think it's become so popular in the church? Because women like to listen to that crap, right? It, how many of those things, weak women are led astray because they're listening to a neogram. They're like, we went to the church, by the way, where um, in Illinois, we went there with the whole Enneagram thing with the McCords, right? We were, I literally took like Sunday school classes from them, right? And it was like how the Enneagram is gospel-centered. It was like gospel-centered plus pagan witchcraft Enneagram. Like if you can imagine that, how have, <laughs> I often think that like, how have we experienced so many things? We got a front row seat to that. Right. Meanwhile, the same church was like, theonomy is paganism. Literally, like theonomy was the devil, but a neogram was cool. Okay, go figure. Right. The church needs to get away from moral therapeutic deism. We need to get away from it. Tenth, and second finally, because there's actually 11 points, I can't count. Tenth, the church is limperisted 
and refuses to make clear stands on social issues. So one of the problems, and, and this is where I've, I spoke about it at the beginning, and uh, I was listening to this talk, I might share it, I don't know, it was on TikTok. Somebody sent it to me, and it was on this tiktok who thing, and I'm not on that because from what I understand, it's basically like porn, but uh, TikTok, TikTok podcast video, which was really solid, and it was this dude who said that he was Eastern Orthodox, and he said, listen, I'm not a Muslim, but... He said, I respect Islam because they are a religion of men, they're a religion of boundaries, and they're a religion that demands to be respected, right? There's a rigidity that is good. And he said, listen, if you're in UK, if you're in the England, and you walk down the street with a shirt that says Jesus is gay, like ain't nobody going to do nothing to you. He said, you walk down the streets of England, and you have anything that is disrespecting the prophet Muhammad or even... The prophet's even on the shirt, like, you're not going to make it to the end of the block. And he said, there's something as a man that I respect about that, because they have boundaries and they stand for them. And he said, listen, I'm, I'm not a bigot. But he said, the reality is, if that book says that being gay is not acceptable, that it's sinful, then you can't teach that it's okay. Right? But what do Christian churches do? This is, again, this guy, Eastern Orthodox guy saying, what do Christian churches do today? Revoice? Revoice, like I, I'm gonna sound like Mora in playoffs. Playoffs, revoice. You want to talk about revoice? Gay dudes who are trying to fly under the radar, saying it's only same-sex attraction. Practice. We're talking about practice. We're talking about revoice. Revoice. Gay dudes pastoring churches. Gay dudes who are pastors of churches. Gay dudes. Revoice. We talking about revoice. Can. I mean, when you stop and you think about this, it's utterly insane. And then I'll say something like, you know, the church is kind of gay today. And people are like, how offensive. Oh, my gosh, you bigot. Well, if you have gay, not okay, not now we're at the point where it's not just effeminate, like outright gay pastors. No wonder the church is gay. No wonder that is repulsive to masculine men. They want nothing to do with this. Right. It is not appealing to men when pastors will not make firm stands on clear biblical social issues, right? This is why I think to me personally, like J.D. Greer, Russ Moore, but let's, let's pick on J.D. for a little bit. Why is J.D. Greer so repulsive to me as a man? When he comes out and he says things like what he said about homosexuality, right? You know, when you hear these guys talking about homosexuality, and they say things like, it's not God's best for you. Not God's best for you. You're going to hell if you do it. That's not what scripture says. Like you're trying to soften the blow, but that is utterly not what scripture says. Right? You are literally being soft about the word of God. And I think that's ultimately where effeminacy and softness comes from. I think this is one way I agree with Phil Johnson. Like, Men are made for doctrine and doctrinal clarity and taking firm stands, right? That is a masculine quality. And by the way, praise God for pastors like John MacArthur. Everybody want to bash John about his poor eschatology. And for a long time, I get it. I totally disagree with John. I think a lot of the things that, you know, that type of theology has actually led to the problem, whatever. John is being faithful now. The, the dude in the moment is rising to the occasion. I praise God for him, right? I'm not going to quibble 
about some of the things that happened in the past. We're all sinners. We make mistakes. The man is repenting, and he's taking on this issue. But again, Phil Johnson, he's correct. Men are ma- Listen, men are made to be protectors. That means that men are the creators of boundaries and walls and borders, ethical, moral, physical. That's what men do. This is why they're given the charge over the church and the church's teaching and doctrine, because men are the ones who will fight for the truth of Scripture. Right? Women don't do that. Women are like, hey, let's all get along. Right? That's the problem, that women by nature, God says by nature, are not to be teachers, because in their nature, they're not meant to do that. Men are made to do that. Right? And again, men are going to be repulsed when their pastors are playing softball, playing with kid gloves on very difficult, complex issues. You know what men love? You know what manly men love? They love pastors like Andy Parker. Shout out to Andy Parker, the Ridge Church in Michigan. Right? They love pastors who will call sin, sin. That's what manly men love. Speak plain, hard truth. Call it like it is. Deal with the fact that a lot of people are not going to like you. Courage, right? I was looking this up again today. It's something I've known for a while, but listen, man in Latin is vir, V-I-R, vir. That's man. And the word means courage or strength. So literally, you can't talk about being a man apart from being courageous, right? To be a man is to be courageous, not to be a coward, not to back down on social issues, right? If you have a limp-wristed church who won't deal head-on with issues, Man, my recommendation is you need to find a place where they don't do that. You need men standing strong. Your spine is not going to be stiffened. You're not going to be courageous unless you see other men doing courageous things. First and foremost, your pastors and elders, these are the men in your life. Like Paul could say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Can you imitate the life and model in your pastors the clear stands they're taking on social issues? Can you do that? You should be able to do that. Right? So many men are repulsed by the church because they have to apologize for their pastors. Yeah, he means well, and he is super spiritual, but he's kind of gay. He's a little flamboyant with his hand gesturing, and he's pretty soft on social issues. Right? Again, repulsive to the church. Eleventh on my 10-point list, and finally, men are culture builders. Men are culture builders, but the church today has no cultural theology. It tells us not to have one. Instead, it replaces cultural biblical theology with social gospel leftist movements. Again, these are repulsive to the church. Think about just one example. Think about Black Lives Matter. Right? We did a show earlier this season on this, but Black Lives Matter, in their foundational statements, Online, you could go and, and look at what they believe, and they are for the, they say openly, we're for the destruction of the nuclear family. We're for kids, we're for women, there's trans, whatever. We're for all of that crap. We're for every perversion, they say. But what, what are they not for? Fatherhood and nuclear families. And then you got a pastor, Matt Chandler, and you got Jonathan Lehman. They close their church but they're out marching with BLM, people who hate you. How do you feel about that as a man? Does that make you feel good? Does it make you feel like your family's safe under their care and teaching? If it does, you might want to look in the mirror. 
right? That's a huge problem, right? Men are culture builders. They need cultural theology. They need pastors who teach them to engage with the culture deeply, richly, robustly. Right? We need to be reading intense theological and historical and political works. We need to be reading the Founding Fathers. We need to be thinking through how should a Christian engage with the culture and not have an answer like our churches today, which is just don't engage except in the terms of critical race theory. But again, utterly repulsive to men. So these are the 10 or 11 reasons why I think men hate going to church. Would definitely be interested to hear your feedback. Why do you think men don't like going to church today? If you have personal experiences, by all means, you can share those with me. Reach out on one of the many social media platforms. You can reach out on Facebook at the Hardman Podcast as well. Definitely love to hear your feedback. Once again, I hope the show has been encouragement. Lots of new patrons and people signing up. Um, I really appreciate that. And yeah, just deeply grateful for all of the support, all of the feedback. We've got guys across the country from California to Michigan, people who support the show, people whose lives are being impacted. That's the most important, amazing thing. I go everywhere around the country. It's so weird. And people are like, hey, are you that hard man podcast guy? And I'm so humbled by it because, man, I, I wouldn't have thought like five, ten years ago that masculinity would be making a comeback. But I'm so grateful to God that it is, and it's happening in your lives. And it's happening in women, too. That's the beauty. Women love the truth of God's word, and that is a beautiful and glorious thing. So all hail the patriarchy, the biblical patriarchy. If you do get a chance, go on to iTunes. You can leave a positive five-star review. Definitely appreciate that. Helps us get out to more and more folks. If you don't have one yet, pick up a pint glass in the store, and we will send that your way so you can enjoy some stay frosty beverages. It's always important. You got to celebrate the patriarchy and celebrate it with your friends and with your family. Until next time, men, stay frosty. Fight the good fight. Act like men.